Well, last week we began our summer series, which we do every summer, um, where we go through the Psalms. We spend summer in the Psalms. Uh, One of the key tenets here at Hillside Baptist Church is biblical exposition, where we go through books of the Bible verse by verse and teaching through them. Uh, We've been going through the gospel according to Luke, but we took a little break for the summer because of uh, the things that happened during the summer. And we've we've always thought, how in the world are we ever going to preach through the Psalms? That's going to take... 30 years. So I was like, well, let's just designate the summers to do that. And, and so we decided to do that. And this year we decided to go through the Psalms of the life of David. Now, in the Psalms, right, David wrote some 74, 75 Psalms that we know of for sure. It could have been more. But there's only 13 of them that have within the superscriptions, those little words underneath them, that tell us the exact thing that was happening, when it was happening, where it was happening, what was happening in David's life when he wrote that. And so that's why we chose those psalms particularly, to let us see these psalms from the life of David, what was going on that that provoked this inspired song in his heart and to give us a greater depth of understanding of the beauty and the importance of how these psalms show us what a life of worship looks like. Last week, Pastor Freddie did a great job of kicking off, kicking us off by, by really getting us a foundation of what's going on in David's life. So much of what we're going to be doing through, uh, going through in these psalms is by going through and looking through the life of David in First and Second Samuel. And so we saw the, the, the choosing of David, how he got brought into this mix to begin with, being selected by the Lord, anointed, uh, being brought into Saul's court to provide um, basically peace to him by playing songs for Saul in the midst of his anguish and despair because of his own actions in many ways. How this, this shepherd boy ends up becoming the hero of Israel by defeating Goliath, that, that wicked giant, that reproach to the people of Israel. How all of a sudden this gets David being celebrated. Saul doesn't like it. He gets really jealous. And this ultimately, after Saul realizes that David is the anointed one of God, he will be the true king to fall in place upon him. That the people of Israel are now championing David. Saul just, he gets to his boiling point. And so he begins to assail, to attack, to assault David, and so he seeks to pursue him. And last week he did this by beginning to, by surrounding David's house. David had been married off to Saul's daughter, Michal, and he has been married to her. So Saul sends a, a guard around David's house to go and to have him slaughtered in his own home. And so we know from the story that Pastor Frey talked about last week, Michal is able to, she gets word of this, she helps David escape. He's able to get away from that. And from there, he sings this beautiful song of how God is his home and his fortress. God is my fortress. God will be the means of my protection. But David is now a man on the run. He is a fugitive. David is in exile. But things would get worse before they got better for David. And in the midst of one of his darkest hours... Plagued by the knowledge of an immense evil which has taken place. An evil which he feels responsible for. David writes this powerful song of assurance 
to comfort his heart in Psalm 52. If you would stand for the reading of the Word this morning. We're going to read Psalm 52, but we're going to spend a whole lot of our time, the majority of our time, looking at the context in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. So we'll read the psalm, and then we'll go to its context. Psalm 52, to the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. One of the great challenges that have been posed to Christians really from its beginning is the problem of evil. God is so good. He's so loving. How can he allow evil in the world? What is his answer for evil? And no matter who you are, you've been kissed by the realities of evil in this life. Sometimes we are so bombarded with evil in our news cycles today that we've almost grown numb to it. We're more shocked when we see good than we do evil. But then, even in the midst of our numbness, there are certain evils that still move us to absolute horror when we hear of them. The issue with the problem of evil is that it, it asks a problem with an assumption. And the assumption is that there's good. And what is, where does this good come from? You see, even in the midst of evil, the reality of good hangs presence of, present upon our hearts. Because the truth of the matter is, is when humanity sees evil, it knows something is fractured. 
in a world where we are just cosmic accidents, space dust put together by a cosmic vacuum, which makes little no sense, where there is no inherent meaning, no intrinsic objectivity to good or evil, those two things don't exist. There is neither evil or good in a Darwinian evolutionary worldview. There is just survival. It's just survival. And whatever you need to do to propagate the vast majority of your species in survival, in competition, is not off the table. So you can say you don't like it, but there is no good or evil. And when everybody presumes the reality of evil, because they know it exists, they're assuming the reality of good. Because they know that that, thing, that which is evil is out of place. It's fractured. It's out of socket. Something's not right. And when they call evil out for what it is, what they're doing is they're showing the light of God still left in the Imago Dei, their image-bearing reality. For evil harasses at every corner terrible things it yearns to do, yet even such darkness cannot keep God's perfect light from shining through. Evil is very real. So what answer has God provided? That is a question that I hope will be fully answered this morning. Of those 13 psalms that David wrote where we have the exact thing, what was going on in David's life when he wrote it, 11 of those 13 psalms were written during times of immense darkness in David's life. Either times of him being attacked or cursed or run out by others or in times of his own personal failure. Darkness he created for himself. And what these Psalms show us in the life of David is that even those after God's own heart are not immune to suffering and sin. The idea that if you follow Christ, if you follow God, your life, you'll never struggle, you'll never suffer. And if you do, you're the, you're the, the, the problem. You're, you don't have enough faith. That is a lie from hell. The prosperity gospel is evil and wicked. Even those after God's own heart are not immune to suffering and sin. Rather, those after God's own heart are those who in the midst of the darkness always turn to, cling to, and rest upon the light of God, who God is for them in the midst of it. It's those who in the midst of suffering and in the midst of sin always go back to God, always cling to Him, always turn to Him. That's the essence of the song. It always starts with problem, pain, don't know what's going on, and it always ends with God. Every psalm is that way. 
It always ends with a with a with a, a word of affirmation. Thank you, brother. I'll put it down here. I'll karate chop that off. <clears throat> it always ends with an absolute affirmation. I know who God is for me and what He will do for me. That is what it is to be after God's own heart. It is an immense pursuit of God, especially in times of darkness. In order to grasp the power and importance of this particular psalm, and these particular psalms in general that we're going through this summer, it is absolutely necessary that we understand the context of when they were written. Because it adds so much depth and weight to the words which the inspired psalmist sings. When we know what events produced them. You know, a text without a context is just a con. And we could make this text in Psalm 52 say whatever, make it say whatever we wanted it to say. But we would miss the immense depth of what this is flowing from when David pens these inspired words. And I believe that the main thing today that we will see from the context and the words of Psalm 52 is this. The sure knowledge of God's steadfast love, unwavering justice, and ultimate deliverance provides the greatest assurance to the soul confronted by the terrible realities of evil. The knowledge of His love, the knowledge of His justice, and the knowledge of His deliverance is what provides assurance to our soul when they are confronted by the realities of evil. It is those truths of God that declare with absolute certainty that evil does not get the last laugh. Evil will not get the last laugh. And so... I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21 and 22 is we're going to spend our time this morning. We're going to look at the context. What's going on in David's life when he wrote that psalm? We're going to learn from it. And then we're going to come back at the end and look at Psalm 52 again. Through the eyes which have been enlightened by the reality of the context of what's going on. The first thing that we see in 1 Samuel 21 is that David receives provision and protection from the house of the Lord. Verse 1 through 9 of 1 Samuel 21. If you are with us through our Luke series, this will be a very familiar story to you. This is what Jesus appeals to on the Sabbath when he feeds his disciples. 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 9. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, 
I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. And if the young men had kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. So David, in the midst of his life here, right? He is running on for his life from Saul. Saul is going after him. He has escaped from his house where Saul had surrounded it by by Saul's daughter Michal, who has helped David get away. Then while he was fleeing, he is linked up to with Jonathan, Saul's son. And there... Jonathan and David make the ultimate covenant. They make the lifelong covenant of friendship where Saul says, or excuse me, Jonathan says, I am making complete allegiance that you are God's king and I will follow you. So Jonathan making that ultimate allegiance, basically binding his sword to David's. This will be the second to last time. Those two best friends will see each other before Jonathan will be killed. So so David is coming off of that. He's running for his life. And so he goes to the town of Nob with a small band of his followers. He's got a few men with him at this time. Now, Nob is the place where the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle were set up after the Philistines destroyed Shiloh back in 1 Samuel 4. So this is where the kind of the current intermediate place where the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle are. So this has kind of become a priestly village. So the priest and all of their families live there in Nob. So David comes there knowing that if anyone's going to provide care for him, it will be one of the priests of the Lord. So he goes to the tabernacle and he's there and Ahimelech's already a little suspicious. Notice he comes out kind of trembling. Now remember, what is David known for at this time? He just killed a giant. David's a warrior. He's a little worried. So like, why are you kind of by yourself? He's worried he's about to get assassinated, right? He's like, oh man, what's happening here? Well, David, amazingly, notice what he says. I'm on a mission from the king. Is David on a mission from the king? No. David is not on a mission from the king. David's running from his life from the king. But he tells Ahimelech, 
I'm doing something for Saul. I'm on a secret mission, basically. Remember that. Ahimelech thinks that he is serving the king's messenger. Remember that. That's going to be important in our next chapter. Now, David is lying. Why is he lying? Because he's afraid. And there's just amazing how the men who God chooses to bring forth his covenant faithfulness and his covenant line often appeal to lying when they're afraid. Abram does this with Sarai saying that, hey, tell them you're my wife. Oh, excuse me, tell me you're my sister. Right? Tell them you're my sister. And that's, he lies. Why? He's afraid. Fear is often the expedited pathway to sin. Because fear flows from a desire for self-preservation. Fear of men is the pathway to sin. So David here, right, isn't very honest about what's going on. He says, hey, I'm, I'm on a secret mission. I need, but do you have some bread? Now what's amazing is he asked for five loaves of bread. When Jesus does this miracle of feeding of 5,000, how many loaves of bread was he given? Five. Man, connections are everywhere. He asked for five loaves, and Ahimelech says, listen, we don't got any bread. The only bread we have is the holy bread, the bread of presence, the, the, the show bread, which was set apart in Leviticus 24 for the priest alone. Only the priest could eat this holy bread. It was set apart and sanctified for the Lord. Nevertheless, Ahimelech understands God's law better than most do. He understands that God desires mercy over ritual. God desires the promotion of life more than the sacrifice of it. So, Ahimelech says, oh, I just need to know. Or have the men kept themselves holy? According to Levitical law, when men were on divine mission from the Lord for battle, they were to be kept from women. They were to be kept from any kind of, of sexual acts during that time of battle or when they were on mission for the king. Which is why Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, when he gets called in from battle from David, won't go into his wife. Because he's following the law. So David says, no, these, these men have kept themselves holy. And how much more holier will they be when they receive the bread? How much holier will they be when they receive the bread from heaven? So, Ahimelech, acting as a compassionate high priest, serves David and his men this holy bread to fill their hunger. Here we see a picture. The anointed king, who is being pursued and spied on by rebels, the anointed king who has no place to lay his head 
receives bread to sustain him in his mission towards the kingdom. Now you understand why Jesus used this as the analogy against the Pharisees in Luke 6. Now, this picture of God sustaining His people in exile with heavenly bread is seen throughout the whole Old Testament. I mean, that's the whole Old Testament. Whether it's manna from the sky, He sustains them with the the Feast of Booths there in the exile, the Babylonian exile. God provides sustenance and provision for His people in the wilderness, in the exile. And my friends, that's exactly what He did for us in Christ. We, in the New Testament, are referred to as what? Exiles. Aliens. Pilgrims. Sojourners. And every morning we are sustained by the merciful provision of Christ. Every day, the manna, Christ, flows and pours into our life, sustaining us with His perfect provision. Now while David is receiving this bread, he catches sight of a familiar character. David's a shepherd. He knows the people in the shepherding and herding business. And he knows from being in Saul's court who Saul's chief herdsman is. Fascinatingly, he was not an Israelite. Saul's chief herdsman is Doeg the Edomite. And David knows where Doeg's allegiance lay. He sees it and he knows that Doeg is going to go tell Saul where he's at. He knows that conflict is now inevitable. And so what does he do? Hey, do you got a sword or a spear? Because he knows I've got to fight. He knows it's coming. He knows once Saul knows about his whereabouts, it will be battle. So he asks for protection. He knows that conflict is coming. And I love this picture of Doeg being an Edomite. Because if you know where the origin of the Edomites are, the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. And inside of the womb, it said that Jacob and Esau were wrestling at war with one another. And this is why David knows the conflict's coming. David knows the battle's coming. Here, the Lord is using an Edomite, right? It's going to go tell Saul to bring conflict against the true Israel. The true king of Israel represented in David. The conflict is going to happen. So David says, okay, I know you just gave me bread, but I need to know in verse 8 and 9, do you have a spear or a sword that, that I can borrow? And he's asking a priest for this. Baby. Like, do you have a sword? Or, do you have anything? Is there anything around here? Uh, uh, you know, uh, is, is there a bladesmith? I'm a blacksmith that I can go to to get a weapon. And what's fascinating is Ahimelech says, there's only one weapon in this entire town. There is only one weapon in this whole place. And it just so happens 
to be the sword of Goliath, the one that you cut his head off with in the valley of Allah. Now, as soon as David hears that's the only weapon that's available, I love what he says, because Ahimelech's almost apologetic. You know, that's the only one we have in the city. And David says, there's none like it. That'll do. That'll do. But I think there's something about that. It wasn't about the craftsmanship of Goliath's sword. It wasn't about the, the pristine edge on each side of the blade that I think fired up the heart of David. No, you can imagine as soon as David saw that sword, his heart was strengthened and encouraged because it was a symbolic testimony. The Lord is with me. The Lord will protect me from my enemies. Why? Because he already has. He's already protected me. So he'll do it again. He'll do it again. David found no hope in the sword. He found hope in the one who gave him the strength to wield it. This is amazing. David, in the midst of being pursued and spied on by his enemy, receives provision and protection from the Lord to sustain him in his exile. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the Lord has done for us and continues to do for us exactly what he did for David. Jesus is the heavenly bread, the bread of presence. The eternal perfect manna who sustains us in this wilderness journey as we are on pilgrimage to our heavenly home. But Jesus is not only the means of our provision, he is the means of our protection. Jesus is the sword who beheaded our enemies. He is the means of our protection. And so while we're in the midst of this exile, Surrounded by enemies at all times. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Notice, not in the absence of them. In the presence of our enemies, Christ is the supreme means of assurance that I have provision from my enemies and protection from my enemies because Christ is with me. And so when I feel in doubt, when I feel assailed, when I feel the evil, if it's, if it's seeming to get the best of me or if it's causing me to doubt or fear, the singular point of Scripture is to say, look to Christ. Look to the provision and protection you have in Him. You need not fear. He will sustain you in this exile. He will sustain you and protect you spiritually in every way. Just as David could take heart from the provision and protection of the Lord during his exile on earth, so can we. We are chosen and called, anointed by the Spirit and awaiting the day to receive a crown of glory. But in the meantime, we remain as exiles, assailed and assaulted by the world, yet provided for and protected by our great Lord who already has won the battle. Cutting off the head of our greatest enemies. And in doing so, he has removed our reproach forever. 
after receiving this provision of perfection, protection, David's aware, I know Doeg's about to go get Saul. It's going to happen. And Saul is going to come at me with a fury. So what he does there is the first thing he does, I'm going to go to a place that I know Saul's too afraid to go. So he flees to the Philistines where the king Achish is there who is the ruler of the Philistines. And the, the kings of the Philistines were often called the, the, the Amalekites or the Abimelechs, the kings of the Philistines. So he goes there hoping that he's going to find some security, maybe kind of lay under the radar. But Achish, the king of the Philistines, recognizes David. And he says, hey, isn't this the guy they sing songs about in Israel? How he's killed ten thousands while Saul's only killed his thousand? And David's like, oh no. They know. I love this. We're not going to talk about this scene in detail because it's going to be the, it's the context of that scene that is behind the next psalm next week, Psalm 34. David knows they know who I am. I love this. You can't run from what God's called you to. Jonah would find out that as well. So what David does is he acts like a madman. He makes himself out to be crazy. And so he just starts acting like a fool and crazy and wild there in the courts of Achish. And Achish is like, I don't think that's David. That can't be the guy who's killed everybody. And so David uses this madman in disguise to flee. So he flees with his family. And he's got his mom and dad with him because he knows what Saul would do to them. So he's got Jesse and his, his mother with him. And so they continue to flee. And there he goes to the cave of Agilom. And in Hebrew, Agilom means refuge. Cave of refuge. You can pull up the picture there uh, for it, um, Josiah. This is the place that is often known as Cave of Agilom. Uh, it goes down to this little furrow there, provides a place for coverage. And uh, you can go there and visit that today. Um, where it's at. So he goes to this cave of refuge. But something remarkable happens while David is at this cave of refuge, this cave of Agilom. We see this at the beginning of 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Agilom. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Listen to this. And everyone who was in distress... And everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. There are parts of David's life where his foreshadowing of Christ are so clear that you just can't even miss it. And 1 Samuel 22 ends and begins and ends with two pictures of David as a type of Christ. Look at the kind of army David's getting. Those who were marginalized, outcast, down and out, the lowest of society. They are those who are distressed, in debt, or depressed. 
These are the ones who are brought into the ranks of the true king of Israel. Is that not exactly what we saw in the Gospels with Jesus? Who is the one that's brought in? It's the outcast, the despised, the leper, the lame, depressed, distressed, in debt. That's who he brings into his army. That's who he becomes commander over. The true king does not recruit a shining, shimmering army of chariots by his side, but rather a motley crew of outsiders who will be victorious, not because of their strength, but because of the fact that the Lord is with them and their king. If you are wondering, I got no place in this. I don't, I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. My faith fails all the time. It's fickle. I fall short. You're in the right army. If Christ is your commander. This is the key throughout all Scripture. It's why Gideon will have to wither his army down to nothing but weak men who have to lap up water like dogs. The weakest of the weak. Why? Because the Lord of the host, the Lord of hosts is the one behind them. God is wanting to make clear all the time. I'm the reason for the victory. You don't get to boast. You don't ever get to say it was me. It's always him. So David becomes an army, which I love this. Because we're going to read later on about the mighty men of David. Yeah, this is how they started. You'll be amazed at what God will do with you when you follow the true king into battle. The last indeed shall be first in the economy of God's purposes. So he said, David has his mother and father with him and he's wondering, okay, I've got this army with me, but I, I can't risk mom and dad being caught up in all of this. So he takes them to a place where he knows they'll be safe, which doesn't make any sense in Israelite history that this would be where they would be safe. Look at verse 3 through 4, where he takes them. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know that God will do what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Why would David think to take his father and mother to Moab? Because this is where David's family line comes from. Maybe you've heard the story of a young woman named Ruth. A Moabite. The enemies of God's people. Now, a Moabite was known for their very attractive women. They often got the Israelite men in a big deal. But God would rescue this Moabite woman, bring her into Bethlehem, where she would be rescued and redeemed, and give birth to a son named Obed, who would give birth to a son named Jesse, who would give birth to a son named David. The reason why David knew to take his family to Moab was because this was their family lineage. God had brought a Moabite to Bethlehem to rescue and redeem her. And now he's taken that Bethlehem to Moab in order to rescue and redeem her. The providence of God. 
is beyond all imagination. When God brought Ruth out of Moab, he was already planning the place of refuge for Jesse. Deep in unsearching minds of never failing skill, God treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. It is beyond all imagination, the providence and plans of God. And that's why hindsight is the greatest gift of grace. Because you may not be sure of God's taking care of things now. But when you look back over your life, you'll see him there a million ways. He's always been there. So David drops off his father and mother and king to the king of Moab. But David's not allowed to stay there. We're told in verse 5, the, the prophet Gad comes to him. And we see, then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the, land, the forest of Hereth. Now, that seems counterintuitive. The king of Moab has a mighty army behind him. David has a physical lineage attached to Moab. This is, by all human measures, the safest place he could be. So why in the world would God say, you don't get to stay here? You got to go back out to the wilderness. See, David was going to learn through this exile and we and ours that the safest place to ever be is not in the strongholds of men, but in the stronghold of the Lord. David was going to have to learn you will not be rescued by the might of men, but of, by the might of the Lord of hosts. My friends, your refuge, your security is not in the schemes or plans or programs of men. It is in the might of the everlasting God. He is our refuge. He is our stronghold. But that reality was going to be challenged immediately for David in the forest. We see secondly that David receives news of a terrible evil that has occurred. Saul does find out about David's actions. And we read about this in verse 6 and 7 of 1 Samuel 22. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. And Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. So. Here we see Saul kind of sitting and simmering in his anger. Saul is already, you see the picture of a clear tyrant in Saul. He's sitting with spear in his hand. And notice who he surrounded himself with. Nothing but Benjaminites. Nothing but his own tribal group. This is what tyrants do. They bring about only yes men. They surround themselves with people who will tell them what they want. Those who they can trust. But notice, he's getting very skeptical that he can't trust anybody. 
None of you tells me that my own son has made a covenant with my enemy. Who of you do you think David's going to take care of? This is called political propaganda. That side won't take care of you. We will. It's political propaganda. gets used today. None of you will stand up for me. None of you will do what's right. He is questioning everyone's loyalty. And Doag sees this as the perfect opportunity to now increase his own status within the courts of the king. Verse 9 through 17. Then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech the son of Ahitu. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, and And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priest of the Lord because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king who would not put out their hand, but the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. So let's stop here for a second. So here Doeg the Edomite says, all right, here's my opportunity. He tells him about David's time there at Nob receiving the bread and the sword from Ahimelech. So Saul summons Ahimelech to him and says, why are you conspiring against me? Now remember from 1 Samuel 21, Ahimelech never conspired against Saul. He didn't know anything about this. And that's what he says to Saul. What do you mean? Why are you mad at me for serving David? He's in your court. I've blessed him many times. Why? What's wrong with that? He said he was on mission for you. I haven't conspired against you. I don't know anything of what you're talking about. But hardened hearts can't hear truth. Please hear that. Hardened hearts can't hear truth. It only seeks to kill it. When the truth doesn't align with the desire of a hardened heart, it only seeks to kill it. So that's what Saul does. Saul says, you're going to die, Himalek. You and all your household. But notice Saul's own guards who still have enough light in them say, I'm not killing them. They wouldn't do it. Enter Doeg the Edomite. Verse 18 and 19. 
Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. That's all priests. Listen to this though. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep. He put to the sword. He killed everybody. He massacred that entire city because Ahimelech, thinking he was serving Saul's court, gave David bread and a sword. The whole city was massacred for that. Now remember... That little nugget we learned about Nob back in 1 Samuel 21. They had no weapons. They had no weapons. It is a powerful reminder of how an unarmed people never stand a chance against an evil tyrannical force. But that's a message for another day. In this terrible genocide, we see the absolute hardness of Saul's heart put on display. And now we see the real reason God rejected Saul. My friends, God did not reject Saul because of a simple act of disobedience and worship. God rejected Saul because Saul's heart was never after the Lord. Saul's heart was never after God's like David's was. David was marked by plenty of failure. What was the difference? One rebelled against God and stayed in rebellion. One rebelled against God and turned in repentance. Rebellion against God's will will always lead to the suppression of God's truth and unrighteousness. Which will lead to further acts of depravity and evil. And this is the essence of what Paul taught in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, verse 28 to 32. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Think about Saul in your mind when you read these words. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is the ultimate condemnation of a hardened heart, is the debased mind. This is the path that all rebellion and all suppression of the truth and unrighteousness will lead to. And Saul's just a living example of it. In an act of absolute terror and evil, Saul had an entire town killed simply because David had been provided there. Yet in the midst of the horror, we are told that one of Ahimelech's sons survived. And he comes and he tells David the terrible news. We see this in verse 19 through 23. And Nob, the city of... Or, excuse me, verse 20 through 23. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. 
And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. And with me, you shall be in safekeeping. David hears from Abiathar, the evil massacre that's taken place. And immediately, he knows it was because of him. Look at what he says. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Here we see the clearest contrast between David and Saul. Saul's sin always led to further rebellion. David's sin always led him to repentance. Always led him to repentance. If you want to cast off blame and to continue to see others as the root of your problems, you will always live in further rebellion. Because you'll never be brought to the reality that it is you who needs repentance first and foremost. David could have easily said, oh, this is all Saul. That evil, wicked dude. He would have been right. Saul's the one who issued the, the murder order. Saul is the one who brought about the genocide onto those people. He could have put all the blame on him. He'd have been right. But David knows what started it all to begin with. David knew he hadn't been completely honest with Ahimelech. He knew that when he saw Doeg that day, there would be conflict. And this is right where he's going to bring Saul. And David left Ahimelech and his people defenseless. He took the only sword they had. And rather than staying and fighting with it to protect those people who had provided for him, he ran to the wilderness and left them defenseless. The reason why I know that David was truly repentant is because his actions bore the fruit of it. And you see that with how he treats Abiathar. I left your people defenseless. I left them without security. But I will not do the same for you. You stay with me. And do not be afraid. For with me, there is safekeeping. How could David say that so confidently? Because looking to the sword strapped to his side, he could know who was on his side. The Lord of hosts is with me. He is with me in the battle. And therefore, I know, I know you'll be safe if you're with me. You stay with me because with me, there is safekeeping. Those are the words that only the anointed king can say. And my friends, I want you to know the true anointed king, Jesus Christ, says that to each and every one of you. This is that second shadow of Christ in David. When Christ says to each and every one of us, to every, each and every one of us, come to me and there is safekeeping. Jesus says to us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and I will not lose one of them. Jesus says, no one will snatch my sheep 
from my hand. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. My friend, hear me today. If you are in any way connected with the true anointed king, the world will persecute you for it. If you are in allegiance with the true king, suffering is your lot in this life. The reason that you can take heart in light of that is that you've already been given victory. You've already been given salvation. And security is yours forever, for eternity, because of the true King of Kings, Jesus Christ. When you are like Abiathar, and everything's been taken from you, and you have had the realities of evil absolutely rob your home, You can come to Jesus with swollen eyes full of tears and a sunken heart drowning in despair and hear these words, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For with me, there is safekeeping. That is Christ's words to you, my friend. David provides comfort to Abiathar. But upon hearing the news of this terrible evil, evil that he knows deep down inside, inside that he was responsible for in many ways, David needs to comfort his own heart. David needs a song of assurance to give his own heart security in the midst of the realities of evil. Thus we get Psalm 52. So Psalm 52, we see David's song of much needed assurance. And let's read through it together now with everything in David's life in mind. The first thing he does is he addresses the wicked man who primarily in mind is Saul, but also Doag. He has them in his heart when he's writing about the wicked man here from verse 1 through 4. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures forever. I love that. He almost interjects it. While he's talking about evil, the the reality of the love of God immediately comes to his heart. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor. You worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, oh, deceitful tongue. Here, he is indicting these wicked men in four ways. First, he is saying to them, Right. You are an enemy of God. You despise wicked and evil while the steadfast love remains every day. You are the total antithesis to God. So in his heart, he's he's proclaiming and indicting Saul by saying you are not God's king. You are his enemy. But notice something. In the midst of the news of this terrible evil. Not one Time does David question the love of God? In other words, the presence of evil is never any indictment on the reality of God's love. 
It is never a reflection of the absence of God's love. It is often in the midst of evil that the light of His love most boundingly shows through. He calls him a deceiver who, like a sharp razor, does anything he can to remove what might stand in his way. He uses deception to remove those who he opposes. He's thinking about Doeg here. Doeg, who saw exactly what Ahimelech said, never once said, yeah, Ahimelech was actually thinking that he was doing this for you. No, he lied in order to, to gain his own status, his wealth, a place high up in the courts of Saul. They are lovers of evil rather than good. And that's the brunt of all wickedness. The reason that the world rejects the anointed king is because it loves darkness more than light. John 3 verse 19 20. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Saul was a devourer. Like all wicked tyrants, he consumes and destroys everything that would stand against his evil agenda or threaten his rule. And this indictment is on all the wickedness of the world. It seeks to deceive. It loves its wickedness. It longs to devour and lives a life of treachery against the holy God of heaven. This is the reality of wicked in the world. But now David ushering into crescendo gives us the absolute assurance of why we can be confident in the reality of evil that evil does not get the last laugh verse 5 and 7 but God will break you down forever he will snatch and tear you from your tent he will uproot you from the land of the living the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying see the man who would not make God his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his Riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. My friends, the reason that David could find hope and assurance in the midst of evil that he had just heard about was because he knew that God is just. And one day in final judgment, all wickedness, all evil will be uprooted and cast into everlasting fire. My friends, the days are numbered for evil in this world. The days are numbered and it knows its days are numbered, which is why it acts all the more violently towards the end. God will be perfect in his justice, my friends. Hear me today. When that day of judgment comes, all evil will be destroyed and all righteousness will be vindicated. And the balances in heaven, or the scales of heaven will be perfectly balanced on the day of judgment. There is no injustice in God. Evil gets no last laugh. Rather, it is the righteous who stand celebrating the perfect victory of God that they took refuge in. But those who trusted in their own might, in their own riches, in their own security, they will be brought to nothing. They will be destroyed on the day of judgment. John talks about this in Revelation of how they will all 
tremble before the Lord because everything that they find security in will melt away around them. Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? All those things that those people who are trying to find security in, when the Lord comes, it will be gone and they will stand all plain as day before a holy God in the courts of heaven. And who will be able to stand on that day? The answer is those who find refuge in the Lord now. Those who take refuge in the Lord now will stand in the day of judgment. And they will be vindicated by their king of kings. And we therefore take assurance of these truths of David. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever and ever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. In contrast to the wicked who are uprooted, those who take refuge in the Lord are planted firm like a green olive tree. What does that mean? It means that they're, they're new. They're, they're, they're always giving new growth. It's Psalm 1. Those who walk in the ways of the Lord are planted by streams of water. Whereas the wicked are uprooted. We will forever give forth fruit and life because we have been grafted and planted into the Lord Himself. We know of His steadfast love forever, which will never fail us. Notice the assurance of David. I thank you because you've already done it. Here's the already of the deliverance. But then what does he say? I will wait for your name. That's the not yet. And that's the tension we all live in in this life. The already of the fact that Jesus has already saved us. He has already destroyed our enemies. He has already guaranteed the victory for us in Him. And yet, we wait patiently for His name. When He comes and does away evil forever, once and for all. Where we will stand vindicated on the mount of the Lord in glory with Him forever. Past deliverance by God provides comfort in the present. And hope for the future. David could look to that sword of Goliath and know he's already done it. And he will get me through this. And we can look to the cross and say he's already done it. And he will come back to make it final once and for all. My friends. Evil is very real in this world. But it does not get the last laugh. And while David waits, notice where he says, I will wait in the presence of the godly. My friends, the Bible never speaks of believers and saints in the singular when it comes to our living in the world. We are exiles, strangers, aliens, saints. It never speaks of us as individuals when it comes to our living in this world together. In a world of evil, 
in order to faithfully endure its realities, we cannot simply trust in the deliverance of Christ alone. We are called to dwell in and promote the presence of the godly community. In a world of evil, it is seeing and showing God's goodness in his people that makes us salt and light. The most radical issue for the philosophical problem of evil is the presence of good. And we are called to be the presence of good in the world. We are called to be the salt and light. While the world grows darker, we are to be the light that shines through the diamonds against the backdrop of the black velvet where all of the intricacies are shown all the greater because of the contrast of the darkness. So that the world can say, what is that hope that is in you? We are called to be so different in the world. So God would allow the evils of the world to continue so that the glories of his goodness would shine all the greater. And it must be seen in us. We are called to be the community of good, the community of light, the community of faithfulness, salt and light. And that's why Christ calls and leads his church to be in the world, but not of it. So as Christians, my friend, we need to know this. Evil is a real problem. But in Christ alone, the God of the Bible has provided the only sufficient solution to answer it. Because the God of the Bible actually entered into creation himself. Took the problem of evil on his very back to become the only solution for it. To all who would believe upon him. If there is no judgment of God. Then there is no hope for evil. There is no hope for anything. But because he will be just. You can know for certain today. Evil does not get the last laugh. My dearest friends. My charge for you today is to rest in the promise of God's justice. The peace of his love and the guarantee of his deliverance found fully in his eternal son, Jesus Christ. For like an olive tree that grows dressed in immortal green, God's children will bloom in his love and in his courts be seen. In Christ's eternal grace and love, the saints will rest secure and all who trust in him alone shall find salvation sure. Jesus is the Lord of hosts. With him, there is safekeeping. With him, there is hope and victory. With him, there is good. So when evil rises around you, turn to Psalm 52 and sing this song of assurance with David, knowing this absolute truth. Evil will lose. Righteousness will prevail. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the realities that you did not blind us from the fact that we will face suffering and sorrow and evil and pain and tragedy in this world. Yet, Lord, it is precisely in the midst of that that you have given us hope, that you have given us answers, that you have given us victory, that you have given us assurance. And so today, Lord, I pray for the weary hearts that have entered into this place, frustrated sorrowed, feeling hopeless by the realities of the evil of the world. 
maybe unable to address the problems of evil that have been posed to them by loved ones or friends, that they would walk away here knowing that the only sufficient answer that's ever been given to that is you, God. It's found in Christ Jesus, who alone bears sin at Calvary, but also will be the judge of it in the end. That your righteousness will prevail. That your victory is sure. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here today, God, that is under the judgment, that knows that they have been living a life of rebellion, that they have not surrendered to you and met with the safekeeping of Christ and Christ alone, Lord, that I pray that they would surrender today. That unlike Saul, who would continue in rebellion, that they would like be like David and turn in repentance and find hope in you alone, salvation in you alone. Lord, you are our only hope for victory, our only hope for life, our only assurance and guarantee that good does win, not evil. So Lord of hosts, be with us. Be with us in the battle. Be with us in the fire. Be with us in the storm. Let us be faithful to you. Always cling to the reality that victory is guaranteed in Christ. In Christ alone. May we all leave here with that assurance on our heart. We say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.